Good afternoon and welcome to the bar. We are here um, for a program sponsored by the Women of Color Attorneys Leadership Forum, which is a brand new forum that was started this year. Today's panelists, I will really quickly go over uh, their bios because part of their bios are part of our discussion. So we have first Justice Kimberly Budd, who was sworn in as the 38th Chief Justice of the Supreme Judicial Court in December 2020, after spending four years on the SJC as an Associate Justice. Justice Budd is the first female African-American Chief Justice of the SJC. We then have Justice Delila Wentland, who was appointed as an Associate Justice of the SJC in December 2020. Prior to that, she was an Associate Justice of the Appeals Court for three years. Justice Wentland is the first Latina on the SJC. Then we have Justice Catherine Hom, who was appointed to the Superior Court in October 2021. Prior to that, she served as an Associate Justice of the Boston Municipal Court for two years. Judge Hom is the only female Asian American judge on the Superior Court. And I'm the moderator, Pyle Salzberg. Um, I am an attorney with the law firm of Laredo and Smith, and I practice in commercial litigation and white collar criminal defense. Before we get started, um, I know that we have people on Zoom, but this question is for people in person. Um, just want to gauge where people are in their practice. So if you are um, under five years of practice, if you could just raise your hands to let us know. Okay, we've got about five, six, seven people. Um, and if you're 10 and over, years of practice. All right, so there we go. Okay, so we've got just about an equal mix of people. So um, I'll try to gauge the questions and we, maybe we can gauge our answers to the, our audience. So the first question, which should have been part of the bio, but I wanted to ask you, was what was your professional path to the bench after law school? Justice Bud, well, let's start with you. So I, uh, I should start by saying I did not start out um, planning to be a judge, certainly did not start planning out to be the chief of the SJC. Um, after I went to law school, I spent a couple of years at a big firm, um, then spent about three or four years at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the criminal division, um, then went uh, in-house at Harvard University in the general counsel's office. Then, <laughs> then I left the practice of law for um, a period of time just because uh, where I was with my kids. Um, so I was working at Harvard Business School um, doing student disciplinary type stuff. And that's where I uh, applied to become a judge from. So it was a little weird having to explain how, you know, I, I, haven't, I hadn't been practicing for a while, but I was able to say that I was sort of doing quasi-judicial stuff by <laughs> getting after the uh, business school students. <laughs> Justice Winlet, what was your path? Um, well, I took a more traditional path. I started off as an engineer, <laughs> as most judges do. Um, and then, oh, sorry, 
Noah, are we okay on this? Okay, sorry. So I started off as an engineer um, and then I uh, decided I wanted to do death penalty work having met uh, Brian Stevenson while I was an engineer. Um, and I did that for about six months after law school and lost a client. I'm still getting over it. Uh, and then I decided to uh, focus in patent litigation. Again, very traditional um, judicial path. Just kidding. Um, and I did that until I no longer was interested in doing that. And unlike the chief, it took me a while before I was no longer interested in doing it. I did it for 20 years at a big firm in town. Um, and then a friend of mine asked me if I was happy and I told her I was, um, uh, and the only thing that would make me happier would be if somebody would appoint me to the bench, but nobody was going to appoint an engineer, uh, turned death penalty advocate, turned IP lawyer to the bench. Um, and she said, go ahead, submit your application. And I did. And the rest is what Pyle just told you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And Judge Hum. So I have a little bit of a non-traditional way to the law school even. So I went to law school um, after college to flee from a pretty unhealthy relationship that I had been in. And um, I took the LSAT. I was pretty lost. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know any lawyers to consult with. And I took the LSATs, didn't even apply to any law schools. This is not a good path for you to approach. I wouldn't recommend it for anyone, but I... um, was lost, but I knew I needed to get away. And and, and um, thankfully for New England, who I didn't even know the school, um, gave me a full ride. And basically, Boston was far away from my hometown. I was able to leave and come on a full scholarship. And um, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do as a law school, um, nor did I ever think that I could ever possibly be a judge or even sit in between these two justices. Um, so when I was in law school, I learned about domestic violence. And when I learned about domestic violence, I realized that that's what I was in. So after that, I really kind of narrowed my field and wanted to work at legal services representing victims of domestic violence. And when I was at legal services uh, in Worcester, right out of law school, I realized that what really excited me and what I really thought I was good at was trial advocacy, actually speaking in front of judges, being in court, um, examining, and, and the legal services, that was a very small portion. I was doing a lot of paperwork. So I realized that what really thrilled me was being in court. And I it was a quite surprise for me because no one ever told me a small Asian woman would be good at a trial litigator. You know, everything that is a stereotype of me is submissive, agreeable, everything that is horrible as a trial attorney. So it was a surprise to me that I liked it. I wasn't sure if I was good at it, but I liked it. And someone recommended that I apply to district attorney's office. And what I thought was going to be a two-year stint um, ended up being a, a life career of 15 years trying very serious cases, homicides, um, sexual assaults. And, um, and only because of that, I appeared in court a lot. And um, the mentors that I had were judges who took favor on me and um, took care of me and advised me. And ultimately, while I was probably at my busiest trying murder cases with three small children, a judge actually approached me and said, when are you going to apply? And I never thought that I it was a possibility for me, um, not only because I never saw anyone that looked like me. I just thought that that wasn't even in the path. <laughs> um, so 
as soon as a judge actually told me that you could do something like this and she actually forced me to apply um, and forced me to take a week off from my busy schedule to apply. Um, and so that that's where it goes. And I went, went to BMC and to go to Superior Court, that was another judge who actually forced me to say that is a possibility for you to go to Superior Court. So I guess, you know, in terms of I've had really good people around me who who encouraged me, who saw things beyond what I saw. Um, but also this is a true testament. This process for me being where I am is a true testament that hard work and good reputation actually do pay off. And that's something that I really recognize and want to tell people that think that you need to know somebody. Um, so it, it is a true testament that I'm in the state that I was appointed that working hard, being passionate for what I do really did pay off. Um, so that's my path to bench. Thank you. Let's stick with the, the idea of when during your career you decided to apply, what was the trigger or the motivation that you said, all right, now is the right time for me? Um, whoever wants to start, take that. I'll, I'll piggyback off. I was, um, I'm very young. Um, and a lot of people thought so too. So, uh, and, and, you know, genetically, I think I look younger too. So. <laughs> but, you know, I, um, I was fairly young. So I was uh, 40 when I applied. So even though I had over 10 years, I had over 12, 13 years, and I've probably tried over 300 jury trials. So it wasn't the body of work that I was um, nervous about, but it was, I really thought that I needed to gain more years. Um, and I might've applied later, but it sometimes it's all about timing. And this judge had pushed me. There were other forces that came about and I was really tired of trying a lot of cases. And I knew that um, this was something that might be that I, something that I could do and I might be good at. So it was a timing of me just being really tired of what I've been doing, although I loved it, people pushing me. Uh, but really, had I thought it on my own, I, I really did think that I was it was too early on. So I think it's something listening to you yourself um, for your own timing, but also, you know, allowing others to really tell you something, too. Justice Bud? Um, I had had people suggest that I should, you know, apply to be a judge. There were a couple of things standing in the way. One, I had spent a couple of years on the JNC and I saw what it took to apply. And I was like, I'm not doing that. That's just, <laughs> it's too much. It was too much. And, you know, I had been told way back at the beginning of my career by my dad that, you know, you really should make a list, keep an accounting of who it is you're working with, you know, what you're doing, all of that stuff so that you have it in case you need it. I did not do that. And, you know, I saw the application. It requires, you know, what are the docket numbers of the last five mm -hmm. trials that you worked on? What are the docket, you know, who are the opposing counsel? This, this, and this. And I was just like, I don't even know where I would find that. So it just seemed like too much. It was too much. I'm not, that's not something I'm going to do. Um, and I'm, some people have heard this story, but I, I was working part-time at Harvard Business School thinking, you know, this is great. It's very flexible, but I really feel like I need to get, I, I feel like I need to do something more. I'm not sure what it would be. And then um, when Barack Obama became president, um, my classmate from Harvard, I was like, okay, so he's president. 
I really do need to get up and do something, <laughs> you know, something. And so that's when I decided I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and apply. And so that's what I did. But it, it took a long time before I thought that that's something that I should do, um, that I'd want to do. Um, it took a while for me to convince myself that that would be a good thing. Um, so I guess I grew up being an advocate for my parents who um, really only spoke Spanish. Um, my older brother was not fit for the task. And so I was always brought along to Social Security Administration or the DMV and just acted as a translator uh, ostensibly for my parents, but really was um, put in a position very early on to be their advocate. So being a lawyer was very easy for me, um, but I am an introvert um, by nature, and it is very uncomfortable for me uh, to be an advocate. It was forced upon me and I did it. Um, it was forced upon me essentially when I became a litigator at a large firm and I could do it. Um, but I always found myself looking at both sides of the case and trying to come to the right outcome behind the scenes, quietly reading, learning um, at my own pace. Um, so at about age 13, I decided I want to be a judge, um, but I didn't know any judges. I didn't know any lawyers. I hardly knew anybody who ever had gone to college. Um, uh, I'm a first generation American. Um, and so I didn't have a path. Um, so I literally did what I liked doing until I no longer liked doing it. Um, and so that was my uh, path and decision making in terms of when to apply to be a judge. I liked being an engineer until I didn't like being an engineer. I liked being a death penalty advocate until I couldn't do it anymore. I liked being um, an ERISA insurance lawyer, a transactional lawyer until I didn't. I did a patent lawyer uh, stuff until I didn't like it. I did patent litigation until I didn't like it. Um, and I always thought, well, I've always wanted to be a judge. And to me, that's my safe place. I didn't think it would happen. Um, I didn't have any help with my application. I didn't know that anybody would help me. Um, it was not uh, considered okay at my firm to be leaving the firm. So I did it quietly, tapping my mentors who I could trust to say, will you write a letter of recommendation? Because I think you need like four 10? I don't even remember. It was like something outrageous. Um, so I had to tell, I had to out myself to about five to 10 of my colleagues. I did it um, and it was scary, um, but I knew I was leaving and whether I was leaving to stay uh, with my kids at home, I also have three kids, um, or whether I was leaving to be a judge uh, was, um, you know, up to the governor. Um, so that was really sort of my decision point. I also had financial constraints um, that required me to choose when I could be um, a judge. I wanted to have to have each of my kids to have enough in their little pool uh, to not worry about what I worried about. How am I going to pay for undergraduate? If I go to graduate school, will it be paid for? And I was lucky enough to be in a position in a large law firm that was going to fund uh, that for my children. So I didn't want to leave a second before those were fully funded. It turns out it doesn't take that long at a large law firm to fund those things. Um, but that was certainly uh, something that entered into my 
um, consideration. And I, and I do want to talk about the, you know, the financial reasons behind the decision making, but uh, let's step back a little bit more uh, with how do you, how did you decide what court you want to apply for? Is that something that the practice that you were in lent itself to, or it was completely a different court? Oh, so I'll take that one. Uh, for me, I was never going to be a trial judge. <laughs> never, ever in my wildest dream. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it. I had been a trial advocate. I'd loved yeah, so I think of trials as a drama, um, as an put on a show. It's me a script, right, or some some part to play. And for me, uh, being an advocate for twenty years, um, that's what I loved doing. The person in the background calling the balls and strikes and objections, I kind of ignored, no offense. <laughs> um, and, and I just didn't, I didn't want to do that. Um, but uh, I, so I focused my practice on IP litigation, but no matter the subject matter, if at the firm there was anybody going to an appellate court to argue, whether it was the appeals court, the SJC, the first circuit, second circuit, federal circuit, ninth circuit, I said, Dalila Wenlant. I can do this, like whatever it is. I did securities um, appeals. So I knew that if I was going to leave this practice, which I did love, it was going to be for appellate work. Uh, so that's how I chose. Uh, I first applied to Boston Municipal Court and um, I was practicing there very young when I was a young prosecutor. So when I got on the bench, I hadn't sat in district court in a very long time, although I knew the the line of work, but most of my work was in Superior Court trying homicide cases. And, um, but I, I, everyone told me, don't apply to Superior Court because you're not going to get it because you're too young. And they were right. Then no one was considering me even to be a judge initially anyway. I'm so grateful that I applied to Boston Municipal Court because I learned so much. If we could make it a requirement for trial judges to go to district court first, to go to Superior Court next, it would be great. I mean, I wouldn't even think about probate court because I don't know anything about it. So obviously it has to be what your experience is. If you've done some juvenile court cases, then you would apply to juvenile if you know land court. So it really is your experience. Um, and, you know, ultimately I did want to go to Superior Court because that's why I practiced and I was longing for that kind of complex litigation. And unlike Justice Wendland, I love doing trials. I love where I'm at now. So I know I'm in the right place. Um, I applied to Superior Court and wanted to um, sit in Superior Court. I have to say, I didn't have a whole lot of state court um, trial experience. Most of my trial experience was in federal court when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But I thought that uh, Superior Court would be something I would enjoy the most. And I really, it was really a wonderful job. And I'm sure it would have been helpful to have um, maybe district or BMC type experience uh, first, but, and I have to say, you know, when you're thrown in there, <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's just that simple. You have to learn how to do it. Um, but, and it, so it took a while to get used to it, but I just really enjoyed being there, um, interacting with the people, which is something that the community courts do all the time, I know, but being able to talk to pro se litigants, trying to help them, um, trying to figure out how we're going to fix this issue. Um, and there was the right mix of writing and trial work. So, um, and criminal and civil. So 
you know, a lot of people do, and I don't know if this is your experience, um, three months of civil, three months of criminal, and, you know, you get to move around. So there's just always something happening. You're always doing something different. Um, and I just, I really, really enjoyed that. So. And so I, I do want to touch upon where you went from one court to another court, but going backwards one step, there's only so many, you know, positions open. Is it possible to apply for a position and then end up in a different court than you applied? And how does that happen? Yeah. So, I, I mean, this is not a, a, I know of someone, it, it's actually true. Like if you apply to district court and JNC thinks you should go to superior court, they offer it to you. Um, but I think it doesn't happen downwards that way. Um, but I think generally where you apply is where you are considered. Um, it may be that if you're, if you're qualified to go to appeals court and you've applied to superior court and there's a position or vacate, you know, um, there's a room and they might suggest it, JNC might suggest it, but you should just apply to where you believe you're going to enjoy working. That's really ultimately, I guess, the rule. But there, there are times when people apply to district court and get superior court. That's really the only time I've ever heard of people not getting what they yeah, had. I'm not sure about to. that. Um, just at my experience on the JNC back 20, 30 years ago now, um, I think you do have an option. I guess it was 20 years. Yeah, I mean, you don't have an option. It, it depends on what's available and what they think you would fit. You know, so you may have applied to a superior, but they think you'd be best in district. It, it can happen. And then you can say, you, you say yes. yes. <laughs> you say yes. Um, so, yeah, it can happen either way. Yeah, I'd spoken to Judge uh, Debbie Squires, who was on the Superior Court, and she had told me that when initially she was asked to apply, it was for an SJC position. Um, and so, she, you know, she wasn't very sure about it, but that was the only open position at the time. So she applied. And I think Justice Kafka got that one. And the GNC came back and said, hey, but we've got a Superior Court position open we would like for you to try, you know, yeah. see if you're interested in that. And that's kind of how it went. So I, I didn't know whether that was common or whether, you know, it was just a Not one-off. as common, but okay. it happens. Okay. Um, so talking about the experience and, you know, what you need, what is this relevant skill set for an attorney to become a judge? And how do people who've not got that skill set in a traditional way get out of their own way to putting that application in? Justice Wendland. <laughs> Well, because I look like I know the answer. Um, I, you know, so this is a bad question for me um, because I didn't think um, of how it was that I was building a skill set would lead to a position on the bench. Um, I do think uh, it's important that you have uh trial experience. Um, it's something that comes up in the application. If you've ever looked at it, it's like, how many trials have you done? How many jury trials? How many non-jury trials? Um, and it, it would be strange to go from being uh, a mergers and acquisition lawyer uh, to suddenly applying on the bench uh, because your skill set is just not um, really apt uh, to do what certainly what trial judges do um, and uh, even um, appellate um, judges. Um, but I think that if you, you know, put yourself out there, I, you know, I 
I just loved appeals, right? So all I did was, you know, constantly walk the halls at Ropes and Gray and say, do you have an appeal? Did you lose that trial? (laughs) (laughs) Or are they the other side appealing it because you won Um, and just volunteer on all of those things. And that's, Um, That was really sort of the basis of much of my JNC um, application was just all the appellate experience um, that I had managed to amass in a variety of different things, you know, civil and criminal um, throughout my career. And I, I, you know, half of what we do is criminal and half is civil. Um, And so one of the things that I did, not because I was building my judicial um, application, um, but just because I loved it, was I constantly had a toe in criminal stuff. Um, You know, even though I was no longer a death penalty advocate, I was always uh, volunteering on death penalty cases that the firm was handling. Um, And so continued that love uh, that I had for that kind of advocacy. Um, and it led to, you know, if you've ever done a death penalty case, it's, you know, every constitutional possibility, even remotely, um, you know, uh, right uh, that you um, uh, amass in the appellate brief. Um, and so I was on top of all of that, um, just um, by the nature of what I liked to do. So that's what, you know, I did to, um, I guess, fill any deficits I may have had in patent law. You know, we do that all the time here in state court. Um, so, you know, 99% of my pra- practice was patent law um, and the rest of it was um, just a variety of appeals and criminal stuff. I mean, I, I will agree. If you print out the application, it is very intimidating if you are not a trial attorney um, and if you are at a law firm. So like, putting aside land... Land court doesn't do jury trials, so it's you don't need the skill set of a jury trial in that sense. Probate court judges don't do jury trials; they do bench trials. They write a lot. They make decisions among you know probate. So if you have that skill set, you know exactly if you've been to probate court. You know, speaking from law firms, if you've done any civil or criminal cases, the importance of trial attorney, trial judges um, in district court or superior court is. They want you to be decisive and make decisions. So if you can make good decisions, good sound decisions, you might be heading there. You don't have to have hundreds of jury trials. The times that it's helpful is, you know, um, being a trial attorney before. I know what judges have done before when I was a lawyer, when there was a sleeping juror. When a juror said something crazy, you know, or during impanelment, those are things that if you've never done that before, it's really hard to learn in a book or in a case law. So it helps in that sense. But if you're a smart person who can make decisions, sometimes also sidebar, they're whispering things you can barely hear and they're making arguments and you just have to, and the jurors are waiting for you, you just have to make a decision. And these are things that really is helpful if you've done some trials or if you know what it's like. You don't have, actually, you don't have to be a good trial attorney. to be a judge, you have to know the situation, but being a good trial attorney, doing like the best closing and opening arguments, it actually makes you more frustrated just watching it as as judge. (laughs) Um, But you do have to know what a trial looks like. You have to know when things come up, what you would do, what instructions you would give. That's superior court and district court. District court is also 95% criminal. 
So it's it's something that you can learn. It doesn't mean that civil attorneys can never become district court judges, but it is something that you have to learn. And all of it is adjusting, learning, humility to know what you know and what you don't know, and adjusting and asking and all of that. Um, but in terms of skill set, it for me, as far as I can see, it takes a lot of patience. Um, it takes it, it, you have to be decisive. And if you make the wrong decisions and it comes to bite you in later on, you have to be okay with it. And you have to be okay with the fact that you made that decision with all the factors that you had. Um, so that's kind of the things that, you know, you have to have some guts to do things that are, that are um, not popular. You have to, you have to be able to release somebody that might be really, you know, had have some serious charges against them if you think that it's necessary. Those are things that you just know you have with some experience, some training, but you have to be able to do that. So for me, these are the skill sets um, that I believe in district court and superior court, you know, all the other courts I don't know much about, but um, so. Justice, but anything to add? Not what the question was, <laughs> but. Oh, your Mike. Mike. Oh. The question was the skill sets that um, an attorney needs to have to you know, get on the bench. Yeah, um, I don't know, that's a big question. I think that there are a couple of things, like if you feel like you are having trouble getting trial experience, and it is nice to have that, don't forget you can do pro bono type things. That's a really great way to get into court. Um, and it, it is nice to have some some familiarity with with that um so i would do that i've heard people say um in their interviews or being or, or they've been advised to say you know i've got a um i don't know so much about xyz but i am you know taking um you know, MCLEs and I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm owning up on some of the, the places where I've got, you know, uh, I'm not as, as uh, familiar with. So you can do that. Um, but nobody's going to have everything. You're just not going to, you know. And so for me, I, I think similar to um, what Dalila said, I, I didn't start out saying, okay, what do I have to do to become a judge? You know, what, 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 um, position should I take so that when I'm ready to apply, I can say, I've got all of this, these things. I just came with what I had, you know, and made the best, tried to, try to make it sound like this would be really good to be, you know, I'd be good because of these things that I did. And that's what you should do. Take what you've done and show why this is helpful and why it would make you a good judge. Just, just a little, I mean, I had zero civil background, zero. And I'm half of my work is civil. So you can do it <laughs> if you don't have any, and, you know, so you can do it. It's just a, you know, it's don't let that scare you off because there are plenty of people, including myself that had many lackings that didn't have all the experience. So I'll just add to that as well. I mean, um, I, um, like the chief, most of my practice uh, was federal. Um, and I knew I was applying to a state position. And so what I did was I literally went around the state um, and I dropped in courthouses, um, tried to be incognito until people found out I was applying. And then they're like, oh, you come up here. I'm like, no, no, I just want to sit in the back. Um, but I really learned so much uh, from just sitting 
and watching. And of course, you know, I was doing all sorts of firm stuff, preparing for depositions or whatever in the back of the courtroom, but just sitting, you know, you were talking earlier about first session, you know, I sat in that and just sitting, um, it's totally different than my practice. Um, So it was good to know what I was getting into. So good for myself, but also helpful to be able to tell the JNC, well, no, I I haven't done uh, probate and family uh, cases, but I've been there when the clerk was advising that line of pro se people on that floor who were desperate Uh, for some help. I've been there and I saw the difficulty that the clerk was having in trying to give legal advice uh, to these pro se um, citizens. Um, So, you know, it was just, so it was good to have my own view of what it was I was getting into, but also helpful to say, yeah, I done my homework. You know, and, and, and so I, you know, would encourage you to do that. It's so easy to do, just pop in. And of course, you know, the officers would be like, well, what are you doing here? Well, is it a closed courtroom? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and the, I just wanted to you know, bring up another point that Judge Squires Lee had said, you know, a lot of people who only practice in civil or only practice in criminal are always afraid about what am I going to do if I get to the bench and I don't know what I'm doing? Well, there's training, some of it at least. Um, but you said, think about it. I mean, a criminal, so I'm, I'm a civil practitioner for the most part. I see 9A packets all the time, right? The civil motion practice. She says there's criminal attorneys, defense attorneys who've never seen a 9A packet and they get, they get that as a judge and they're intimidated by it. So think about it. It's not just one way where the civil litigators are worried about what happens if there's a rule 11 hearing and I'm like, oh, what should I do now? It's the same fear on the other side who've never done this a civil work where they're like, all right, I don't know what to do with this 9A packet. I'm going to just set it for hearing. It's so, you know, the fear is on both sides. Um, sticking with that again, I, I don't want to give the impression that, that you need to be a litigator to apply on the bench. Is there a place for transactional attorneys or public interest attorneys who are maybe not really in a traditional litigation practice to apply for the bench and to be on the bench? Is there a place for, you know, and what can they do? Yes, the answer is yes. But if your um, if your office, in terms of what you do daily, is not the courtroom, you should know at least what's happening in the courtroom because that's going to be your office as a judge. Um, so a lot of the writing is internal, academic. You're writing it, but a lot of most of what you do it happens in the courtroom. So. Yes, you you can, and you have the skill set. You're smart. You work hard. You can get through um, and figure out everything. But you should know what your office is going to look like. You know, so it, I can't stress enough: come to court and watch, um, and, and know at least what you're getting yourself into in terms of: am I going to like this? Um, because I, I think you have to come to court. And watch because if you if you've never been to court and you um, as a lawyer, I think it's something that you have to know. So there is a place for you, and the application is very scary. But I heard that now trials instead of trials, you can write an uh, an essay about why you haven't done trials and how you could you can translate to being being a good judge and 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 also use references for that. So I don't know if that's a new change to JNC, but I think it's a great change to welcome more attorneys who are in fear that you don't have trials. So there is a place for you. And um, there are many judges who've never tried a case 
who are very good judges. So it's a place for you, but you know, you need to know where your office is going to be, what you're, what you're going to be doing daily. And I think that's something what we talked about of observing. Justice, but I want to ask you, given your path where, you know, you were a, a litigator in a, in a private practice, a U.S. attorney, and then you, you know, went to the in-house, how was that series of jobs helpful for you when in applying for the bench? Um, well, I did have something to put in each of the sections. That was nice. <laughs> Um, but I, I agree, you don't have to have all the different things. Um, again, I, I think it wasn't, I didn't do it in order to become a judge. I didn't want to be a judge. Um, I did it because I had, there were opportunities that came up that seemed interesting to me and I took them and I got what I could out of them. And similar to, um, Justice Wimlet, when it didn't work for me anymore, you know, I, sought something else out. Um, so, um, yeah, and I, I thought that was a pretty cool trick with the last one, you know, coming <laughs> off not practicing. Um, but yeah, I just, it's, it really is just taking what you've done and showing how this is helpful, how this would be helpful uh, to being a judge. So that's what I would say. What else did you do in preparing so you were pre- if you had time, right? You were trying to raise kids and you've got work and you've got all this other stuff you're doing. Were there other extracurriculars that you did to kind of, you know, with the bar association involvement, those type of legal community involvement? Yeah. Did no, you that's do those? Were they helpful? Point. How did they help? I think those, they're very helpful. To be involved in a bar association um, is really important because you make professional contacts, right? And you get to know people, they get to know you. So they're, when they start calling around, Hey, is this Kim Bud person any good? Hopefully it's going to be yes, but they won't know. They won't have anyone to call if you aren't out there, you know, so important to, to have those contacts. And I, you know, it's crazy to me that I've been, you know, out in the world since law school for so long, but the people that, you know, we were all little together. Now we're all big together, you know, and I know all these people in these high places and I'm like, oh, how'd you get there? (laughs) Um, And that, but that's what happens. You know, these are the people that um, you're coming up with and everybody's doing all these different things. Hannah's um, nodding because she was my manager at the uh, Harvard Legal Aid Clinic. (laughs) She was my manager. She was a paralegal and I was a law student. And now it's nutty. So, so yeah, no, you've got to be out there. You can't just stay in your little, you know, office doing your work, which is important, obviously, but that can't be the only thing you do because nobody's going to know. How do you do that as an introvert, Justice Wendland? (laughs) Well, I think it's all about community. Um, You know, the bar associations are an easy community uh, for you to belong to. So as an introvert, I actually feel really comfortable with groups and getting, you know, seeing familiar faces, right? You see them in the, in the little meetings and you, you, sometimes you get up and you speak at the meetings and then you see them in court and you bump into each other, you know, at the court, you know, near the courthouse. Um, and it makes you feel connected. And I think the nice thing about practicing in Massachusetts 
is that although there are a lot of lawyers here, you'd be surprised at how often you bump into the same group of people over and over again. So for me, that part of the application was really my comfort zone. It was like, okay, well, yeah, I belong to the IP, you know, lawyers of Massachusetts or the Boston IP Law Association or the BBA talking about trademarks. And that was just part of um, the fun part uh, of practicing law. It wasn't a job. It was a place to be at home um, and really find connections. Um, And I think that, you know, that, you know, we're talking earlier about, you know, what are the qualifications of a judge? I think one of the things that is important for a judge is somebody who cares about the practice of law in Massachusetts. It sounds really lofty. Um, It's not really. It's about, you know, how are people doing? Who, who do we see here? How are, you know, how are they, you know, what's their well-being like? You know, do you know their kids? Do you participate in things with them. And so for me, that was a comfort coming from um, not Massachusetts. I grew up in Illinois. Um, It it became my home. I I just want to pause here. To the extent that any of you have questions that relate to what the judges are talking about, please feel free to raise your hands and ask so that we can address them as we're going along. And people who are joining us on Zoom, uh, please use uh, the question and answer feature on Zooms and Pop it in there if you want. You can do it anonymously, um, and I can read out those questions if, when they come up. Um, okay, so let's talk about the actual application process, which seems <laughs> big. Um, lots of questions. Um, how does when you're let's say you you don't have enough trial, you don't have any trial experience? How does that affect the strength of your application? Um, I, I took the application as suggestive. Um, I, you know, they asked for particular types of experience and I just wrote about the experiences I had. And, you know, they were not non-responsive answers, but they gave a picture of who I was and what I presented as a candidate. Um, I didn't feel like I could fudge you know, having, you know, uh, you know, 300 jury trials. I, I, you know, it was just, you know, yeah, but I've been practicing for 20 years and this is what I've done. Um, and so that's, that was my approach uh, to the application. Um, you know, they, there's a whole section about like percentages of trials in Massachusetts and mine was zero. Um, so, you know, so I, I, you know, wrote down zero cause you don't want to lie, but I've had these trials in, you know, California or Delaware or Florida or, you know, whatever it was uh, where I had uh, my experience. So that's how I approached um, the application as somewhat suggestive. Um, somebody did point that, I, you know, in, uh, you know, just if you do that, you should be prepared for if you get called in uh, for an interview to explain, you know, how it is that for when the question asked for Massachusetts jury trials, you wrote about something in Florida. Um, and I was candid uh, about what I was doing because I, and I told them I thought you wanted to know about me and this is me. I mean, having reviewed a lot of um, applications now as, as a judge for people, I feel like I'm like the Princeton review of 
JNC. <laughs> I won't charge you, but I'll review your application and do mock interviews for you. If you are in that situation, call me up anytime. I'm happy to help. Um, having reviewed a lot, I think people write, you know, if you've done transactional work, Smith versus Smith, I've done this case and this is what I did on it. And this is how I think I'll be a good judge having done this case. I've had a very difficult client and that I know I how to deal with difficult people on the bench, on, from the bench. So you don't have to list trials. I, I, I think that if you haven't done drugs, you don't leave it blank. You put something that you did that's applicable. Um, so don't let that stop you. In my opinion, part two, 74 and 76 is the most important number 74 and number 76. The fact that I know this by heart and just shows you that I still have PTSD. That's just very scary. (laughs) But 74 and 76 ask you, who are you? What's your background? Why do you want to be a judge? And why do you think you will be a good judge? There's two forms of it. That is the most interesting part where you really have to dig in deep about why you want to be a judge and why you think you'll be good at it and why you care to be a judge. So 7476 is, you know, the most important, um, I think, in terms of about you. And I know the JNC members, maybe, I don't know if you remember as a JNC, I know that that that's what really, you know, that they read because a lot of times, you know, you explain this much about your case into details. They don't, they can't follow. They don't know. So, I mean, it's, it's about like what kind of case it is, why you think it's good for, to be a judge with that experience. But um, so same thing. I, I think it's suggestion because you can't make it up, but you have to put in something, but you can put in whatever case that you did, whatever client that you work with and translate it into how you would be a good judge. I think the other thing, um, Kat, that you said about, um, what the JNC is looking for is true. That the the new version of the JNC understands that everybody doesn't have a ton of trial um, trials to write down, and they want to sort of de-emphasize that and make sure that you have the opportunity to talk about what it is that you have done. And so that I got straight from the um, the current chair of the JNC. Um, that's what they're doing. So. Um, there's no need to fear. Well, I don't have as I don't have enough um, trials to write on these lines. I don't have five trials or whatever it is. Do these other things, and it really it it's it's just as good. And a lot of the times in cases, at least in the litigation side of things, criminal and civil, you'll prep right up to the point of trial, and then you won't go. That all is valuable. You prepared. Right. You know, openings and you've prepared cross exams. And sorry, we have a question in the back. Yes. Yes. Um, in Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely, I had many trials at the ITC before um, becoming a judge and I put those down as 
trials, bench trials, um, but I put them down as trials. Um, and I also had a lot of arbitration experience. And again, I put those down in tr- as trials, you know, asterisk arbitration, you know, three judge, three panel arbitration, whatever it was. Just a, yeah. uh, sorry, just a quick, um, for the people who are on Zoom, the question asked was about um, whether you experience with, you know, arbitrations and those kind of quasi-judicial um, fora can be helpful for answering that question about trial experience. So the answer is a big yes. I mean, in civil superior court, uh, I, you know, settlement conferences, we do a form of arbitration. And I wish I knew what that was because I didn't know when I first did a settlement conference until I realized it's kind of like a plea lobby in criminal form. So it translates so much. You're listening to two, you've seen an arbitrator listen to two facts, try to figure something out in between. That's what you do in criminal sense in a lobby of a plea and civil. So it is a big yes. That's a huge plus for you to put. Anything to add on those? Okay. So how long did it take each of you to fill out that application and get it to a point where you were comfortable submitting it? And what was that process like? Did somebody help you in it? Did you go to a bar organization? What was the process of the actual application filling? So I took a week off because the judge forced me to. (laughs) I took a week off and that week I just hand wrote everything and kind of organized my trials. And it was easier for me because I kept a list of the dockets and it's easy to look up a mass court. <laughs> um, so that was easy. Um, but I took a full week off to, to, to work on it. And then I, in July, and um, I put in the application, I think there was a deadline. So it's really good to have a deadline, have a time frame. Um, and, and I think I put it in November. I, you know, I, it took a while for me. I, it could be shorter. Um, and then the process was very long. I, I saw many people who applied who were getting it and I f- was very dismayed. I, I heard silence. I kept thinking this might be my last trial and it was 10th trial after. So, you know, um, so the process can be very different for people. It's kind of like having a kid, ha- being pregnant, like everyone ends up having a child, but the process is very different. So you can listen to other people's pregnancy delivery, but it's very different for your process. Um, so mine was a full two years um, when I got onto Boston Municipal Court, um, but Superior Court, I got in in six months. So it's very different. But the application, you have to work at it. It's kind of like studying for the bar. You knew you have to put in a certain number of hours. You have to work at it. I know we're all busy. We have other things. You have to put in the time. You have to put in that time and, you know, extra time in um in um, during the weekends, and then and then I would ask a, a trusted person to review it, one who is not a lawyer to look over it, um, and then one who is a lawyer or judge that it, you may you may know, and you could ask BBA to connect you with somebody because a lot of people are willing to help. Um, so that's that's what I did, and that's what I would recommend. Why a non-lawyer to look over your application? I don't know. Just, just I wanted my friend to see if I had any typos. She was a good editor. And also, I just wanted to see if I was talking too legal, like too much legal, and if it made sense. So it was just something that I did. Justice Bud, thoughts on, how, you know, how long your process took? Yeah, you got, I got to tell you, I mean, this is my 14th year. I'm a judge. I can't believe it. So I was, a, I was, in superior court for 
seven years, and this is my seventh year on the SJC. All of which is to say, I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> I applied. It was. It's. It's a long process. I told you. I. I resisted for many, many years. Um, it's a lot, but it's not too much. If it's something you want, it's absolutely not too much to do. You you pull it together. You have somebody look at it. Um, you put your best foot forward. And uh, yeah, I mean, but it's a lot. You can do it in chunks if you want. You want Start first step, just just download it. <laughs> yeah, just take a look at it. Oh, I could answer that. Yeah, oh, this I'll have to get some more information on. But just get familiar with it. Just you know, it, you, you know, so that you're not like overwhelmed. Yeah. And then you know, start filling out <laughs> name address. <laughs> <laughs> Think about the people you might want to be your um, you know, your references. Things like that. Um, it's, it's quite something. Justice Wendlin, how long did your process take, the application preparation process? Well, I mean, I agree with the chief. I think downloading it and looking at all the questions and then just thinking about it um, is your best um, way of approaching it. And I do agree that doing it in chunks made sense. It was the only way I could do it, um, given my practice. Um, how long did it take? I mean, I think if it's 74 and 76, um, those questions uh, took time to develop a coherent narrative for. I think they are actually excellent questions. And I found myself really wanting the job after I thought about the answers uh, to those questions where I thought my skill set um, matched what I really wanted to do uh, for the Commonwealth. I'm sort of a public interest person come lately, um, but that's not where my heart is. It's just where my finances drove me. Um, and when I wrote the answers to those questions and realized with my husband and family that we could do this, I really wanted it. Um, and so I don't know how long it took. Thankfully, I only practiced in federal court or primarily in federal court. So I just downloaded, I just Delila Argez Wenland. Thankfully, I have a very complicated name and just hit, you know, uh, you know, as party representative. And then I got a full list, a full docket, opposing counsel, everything right there. Um, and it was really um, quite lovely. Um, I'm working on that for the state system. So if you're state <laughs> practitioners soon, it's coming to you. Um, but uh, for me, that really, um, you know, really saved a lot of time, that part of the application. I knew where I, I had been uh, for 20 years, uh, which is what they asked for. Um, so, um, so that was my process. I really, I had a weekend to do it, um, after all of that thought. We have a question online. Did any of you mention the fact of being a mom or having kids in your GNC app, in your application? Yes. And, you know, how much did you go into it? What, if you can kind of expand on that. I, I think I, I, I know I did. Um, 
And I think I put it um, where it was the traits of a judge. What do you think are the three good traits for the judge? And I wrote patience or something. And I said, being a mom of three kids, like it, it's also helped me kind of thing or listening skills. So I did add it there um, because it was an important factor for me. Um, and it was also kind of, there weren't many extracurriculars that I did as much as I wanted to. So that was something that I wanted to highlight, but not so much because it really doesn't ask for it in any times, so but that's the only time I put it in, I think. What was the question about, um, was there a time when something, something failure, was it failure? There was a question. There's a question in there that asks about, some experience you had. And I actually used um, that question to talk about the time when I left the practice of law, which was primarily because I had two small children. And so I talked about the sort of the process I went through, think about how I was going to make things work for my family and myself and um, leaving the practice. And then so um, that was the that was the context I did it in, and um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess it showed. I don't know what it showed, but that was my <laughs> that was my difficulty. <laughs> What's interesting is that you know this was however long ago. I had asked for I had asked to work a day at home, and they were like, "No, you can't do that." And I was like, "Okay, well, then I'm going to go." <laughs> if you know of something um, where I can work less than full time, let me know because I'm, you know, that's what I'm looking for. And as it turned out, they directed me to my next job, which was lovely. You know, it worked out wonderfully. But can you imagine that? Say, I know you can't work at one day. I didn't say I wanted to work four days, by the way. I said, I just want to work one day from home so I could put in some laundry, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I did not mention my children in my application at all. It came up uh, when uh, I was interviewing uh, with a full panoply of the JNC, and then it definitely came up um, as I moved up um, the ladder with the governor's legal counsel and the governor and the lieutenant governor. What did you find most helpful? Yes, absolutely. Um, so it wasn't in any sort of cross-examination way. I think we were talking about, you know, uh, finding roots in Massachusetts and, uh, I frankly found, um, being rooted in Massachusetts difficult until I had children. And then it seems like the Commonwealth turns on its love and uh, openness and you become parts of community um, in a way um, that when you're double income, no kids uh, does not, or at least we didn't feel that love, not the way we had Midwestern love. Um, and so it, it came up in that context. And then there was, a worry. How are you going to do this job, um, given 
what you've got going on at home and that you have no support system um, in in the Commonwealth, uh, which is all true. And I said, I don't know. I've been doing it now for 20 some odd years. Um, and we take it one day at a time. The kids change and their needs change and how we adapt to that as a family uh, changes. But I'm confident uh, that this Wenlant clan is able to adapt. So that's how um, it, that's how it came up really sort of innocuously, but then it did trigger um, some, some red flag issues. I think that, that everybody wanted uh, to make sure it was okay. Thank you, great question. Um, did your identity as women of color affect your thought process in applying for the bench? And did it have an impact on when um, and when in your career you applied? The fact that, you know, you are a woman of color, especially maybe not at that time wasn't as much of a DAI impact, just the fact of having somebody that looked like you on the bench. But going back, you know, 15, 20 years or even five years when you applied, did that have an impact on your decision? Uh, for me, it, it did. Um, so I immigrated here when I was 10, speaking no English. So that was something that I knew when people don't speak English in court, that was something that I could understand. I also um, went to court with my parents all the time because they owned a small dry cleaner store and they, we got sued all the time in small claims court. And I had to um, translate for my parents, like awkward eighth grader that I was. And so... Those things really mattered when I am, am, I'm in court and I see kids or I see people that don't speak English. That's something that resonates with me. Um, immigration, the immigrants, like that stuff really resonates with me. And so I knew that even though I was young, I had a lot of ex life experience in terms of kind of what I had gone through in college, you know, um, my family um, living in a different socioeconomic stance and seeing my parents in, in that situation. So for me, it was really important. And I did highlight it a lot in my application. I wasn't saying, you know, like I, I'm an Asian person, you should pick me. I didn't want to be picked because of that. So um, I think that's why I thought I had to do more trials because I wanted to be more qualified. So it was a, a real dichotomy for me, a real struggle for me about how much to highlight because I didn't want to get the job because of this position. I wanted to get it because I, I was qualified and I, you know, um, had the work for it. But it was something that I was different. I came from a different background and I understand people differently. And that was something very important that I wanted to highlight. So I did highlight it in my 74 and 76. Um, but in some some ways, you know, the cases that I explain what what kind of cases I I translated into how I, my thought process as a prosecutor, I wasn't just thinking of it as a win or as a prosecutor. I was thinking of it from my growing up a certain way, being victimized from a store, you know, or, you know, having been accused of something. So there was a different background that I had that I knew was different from other judges. And that was important. Um, and so I did highlight it and it was important for me to apply, particularly in Superior Court, um, for me, because as judges were encouraging me to do it, I knew that there was, you know, um, besides Angel Kelly Brown, who left to go to federal court, she was the first Asian American judge ever. I'm the second Asian American judge 
in Superior Court. And I got appointed in 2020, 2019. I mean, 2019. So, you know, it was something that was important to me, but I also struggled so hard to not mention it or not be my only thing. So it was a, it was a real struggle um, in terms of how much to put in, how much to highlight, even in the interviews and all that stuff. So it was, it was something that I struggled with a lot. Justice Budd, did that, did your identity as a woman of color come out as part of the application or, you know, the process? Yeah. I think um, the mic, sorry. Oh, sorry. I think, um, I didn't think about it as much during the process of applying, but I did think about it a lot just doing the job and being on the bench. It was really important to me to be a person of color in, a, in places where, you know, it may have been just me and the defendant in the whole courtroom um, many times, many, many times. And so it was important to me to be visible, um, important for other people to see a black woman judge, you know, in the courtroom. Um, I still um, talk to my friends in Middlesex Superior Court. Uh, there were a couple of times when it was me, my black um, female court officer, and my black female courtroom clerk, it would just be the three of us. People would walk in the courtroom and be like, and we're like, no, come on in, you're in the right place. We'll, we'll help you out. It was hilarious, you know, and um, it's just important for people to see people, uh, people who look different from them, you know, and that by the same token, it's important for people of color to see people of color on the bench. And so that um, that was really I, I really like that. I like being able to do that for people. Justice Swenson. Um, so I have a confession. Uh, for me, my entire professional life until I came on the bench uh, was about fitting in, uh, which meant not highlighting uh, that English was my second language or um, my fam family background. And frankly, for the time I was an engineer, through the time I was a partner at a firm, it didn't matter, or it seemed to me that it didn't matter at all. It was not, it was definitely unique. Um, and so um, I knew I couldn't hide in a room of 500 white tall men. Um, and, and that I actually took and flipped the narrative on that. I just took the stage, right? I was going to, people are going to look at me. Well, look at me. <laughs> right. Um, and so it just didn't factor into my application process, um, my interviews, any anything. It really didn't hit me um, that it was going to be important to anybody until I um, was before the governor's council and I uh, decided to speak in Spanish. And I could see tears in people's eyes. Um, and I looked at my daughter uh, who was behind me and she was choked up. And, and then I realized that 
I had missed an opportunity to teach people who I am beyond being a good litigator um, and showing people what um, a Latina, first-generation American, you know, English is your second language person could be, mother could be, all of these personal aspects of my life that were really important and took up so much of my time and energy I had buried until that moment. Um, and so I made a decision that day to no longer um, hide that story. I wasn't ashamed of it. It just didn't seem important. But then it turned out it was important mm -hmm. to other people. Um, and I understand now uh, why it is important. Um, and, and so I, I take moments to tell my story um, often uh, to encourage people who might not otherwise apply. You know, I got lucky because I, I just didn't think not to apply, right? It was just never in my narrative that I was not going to try this. Um, but I know that there are for other people um, who might hesitate. Um, and, and so if I can give them a boost, um, I'm happy to do that. Thank you. Um, sticking with the emotional aspect, the, the, the application and interview process can have an emotional toll. Um, what was one of the biggest hurdles you faced during the process and how did you deal with it? For me, the scariest part was other people finding out that I was oh, in yeah. the process. Yeah. And it was just, I couldn't get over it because I was so afraid that people were going to say, who the hell does Kat think she is mm -hmm. applying? Um, so that was something so I'm so scared of. And that doesn't happen until you pass through JNC interview. So you don't have to tell anybody while you're applying. I would not recommend telling people. You don't even have to tell your references. I didn't call up all the defense attorneys and say, you're going to get called. Because I knew what they were going to say about me. It was going to be fairly good. So I didn't, I personally did not call up anybody. I didn't tell the district attorney. I didn't tell my supervisors until I passed JNC and they were doing due diligence and calling people. And frankly, the JNC that I was with, they weren't calling up people that were on my reference list. They were calling everyone but because you know you put them on your list because you might they might say good things about you that was the scariest thing for me and i think it was just me getting over that i deserve it that i'm qualified to do it and and i just and that was something so scary for me as more people found out that they may think i i shouldn't do it and that was something just i had to that noise, I had to quiet down because inevitably it's a small legal field. Everyone will know about it if you're going farther along. Um, that was something I just had to get over and um, kind of just quiet in my own voice that I don't deserve it. And that was, that's constant. That's every day. Like every day I go out to court, I think I don't deserve it. Or when I was in BMC, my I didn't want to do it because I didn't want other BMC colleagues to think that I thought I was too good for it and was moving up like in two years. That was my biggest fear. Um, so I had to get over and, and, and I had to really dig down deep as to why I was so scared of other people finding out. And it was, you know, is it because I really don't deserve it? Is that why? Or is it just my, I don't want their perception to think that I was, 
I don't know, uh, ambitious. I don't know. <laughs> no, one, and no one else seems to worry about it except me. But that, that it's just um, that that was something that I really worried about and had had turmoiled over um, the people finding out and people thinking that I didn't deserve to get it. You know what? People always think that there's people lined up who are thinking about that. So I had to quiet that voice down. And ultimately I applied because I couldn't let my like feelings of wanting to become a judge that be buried by worry about what other people are going to think. So that was my biggest emotional, I think also finding out other people are getting in and I knew we had applied around the same time and I was getting silence. Mm -hmm. That's also hard too. So for me, ignorance is bliss. Um, I did not know anybody who had applied. I actually should take that back. I knew one person who had applied to be on the appeals court, but he had passed away uh, long before I had uh, applied. Um, And so I didn't know anything about it. I did ask some people and they didn't know anything about it. Um, and so when I walked into, so you walk into the JNC interview and they're sitting at like this board of directors table and they have binders and you can look and you can see your name and there's circled things and things are highlighted. It was terrifying. I didn't, I thought I was going to meet with like three people. I didn't realize it was going to be that many. Um, so I walked in and the table just seemed endless. You know, it was just like, (laughs) And they're all, you know, you know, the the head of the JNC at the time was introducing some of them. I'm like, I have I've not met any of these people. I'm never going to remember their names. I can't even know my name. That was just like <laughs> horrible. And then they should start firing questions. And thankfully, their questions were right off the application, which I did, you know, know to prepare. Um, and I had been thoughtful about 74 and 76, which they asked about. Um, so, you know, it was just, but then you should know at the end, if, if the process is still the same, they give you an opportunity to speak. Argument. Yeah. Closing argument. Yeah. Yes. Closing argument. You know, is there anything that we haven't asked that you would like us to know? <laughs> And I remember uh, saying aloud, I thought it was just in my head, but it was aloud. Well, this should be interesting. <laughs> I am not prepared anything at all. So prepare, you know, five, you know, two minutes at most, because it does, the, you know, the interview does fly by. And, you know, at the end, they're just all checking their watches. But I had no idea that I was going to be given this forum to give my closing argument on why I should be uh, a judge yeah. in the state court. Um, so, yeah, I, ignorance is bliss. It was it was really nice not to know. So I was you know, very, very calm as I walked in. It was just, um, you know, we should prepare these things. Can I ask, do they still start the interview with, tell us why you want to be a judge and why you'd be a good one? Do they start with that? It used to be, what is empathy? Oh, I had. That was the, I mean, I have, if you call me up, I have lines of questions that I've compiled on my own and my (laughs) two. And then also from what I get from people. So this JNC, I don't know well. So it will it will take some time to figure out to what they're that. like, you know. But um, I would recommend finding someone through BBA or someone to 
ask what what should I prepare for and do one sip at a time. I had somebody that I didn't know that well, but somebody put us together and had just become a judge. So it was, it was very fresh in her mind. So she was able to help me out one step at a time. And I owe my life to her. Um, so um, because she was able to say, this is what you're going to do. You're going to sit down in a room and then they're going to come get you. All of that was helpful to me. Um, so you should always ask, ask BBA or ask anybody to say, please like connect me with someone that has, that knows the process that can help me with this. Yeah. It turns out there's a lot of people who are willing to help. I just didn't know where to start. <laughs> and my question was, what does team mean to you? Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have a question on the front. Um, so I'm, Relatively new to Massachusetts. I came from Florida originally. I've been here about two years. So uh, in Florida, they publish the names of the applicants and the people are actually interviewing and the names of the people that are going up to the governor for final selection. So my question is twofold. One, oh, and by the way, the public is able to like send in commentary on the applicants. So my question is twofold. One, does Massachusetts, it doesn't sound like Massachusetts does that. And, um, and then my second question is, um, you know, are, is the public able to ever find out who's applying? And then I guess I have a third problem too. I'm sorry. Um, has there ever been, uh, or did you ever encounter any, um, any negativity that came from So there's no public forum where they list your name, but once you get nominated by the governor, it's usually in Lawyers Weekly. It's not in Boston Globe, you know, unless you're becoming SJC judges. And and, um, so if you're in the legal field, it's a very small legal field, as you will notice in Boston, and it's a really gossipy group. So everyone knows everything. Um, judges are the worst, but we know everything and the lawyers know everything, who's in the works, who's applying. So somehow the word gets out because also references are called during due diligence. But once the governor nominates you, that's when you get more publication, especially the higher courts you go. Um, And then uh, the governor's counselors have to vote you. That's the last time that you have to go through. And there is a forum where the public can come. If you have a disgruntled client who hates you, they may show up, uh, be prepared for that. I think people know that if you've been practicing enough, you may have those instances. Attorneys who hate you, um, they may come up and they may say something really bad about you during due diligence. So I tell um, young attorneys, um, especially civil litigants who really don't get along, I noticed criminal lawyers get along much more. Um, I tell young lawyers, you can be firm and you can be an advocate and you can be aggressive and be a good advocate without, without having to later on get a really bad review on due diligence. So don't write emails that's going to haunt you later. Don't say stuff that's going to haunt you later. You can be respectful and really disagree. So that's my advice to you if you're starting out in your career. If you have some very contentious cases that you know lawyers hate you, um, you might get a bad due diligence call that I think people, JNC members know that um, as long as, in my opinion, it's not 
ethics issue, that it was a contentious case. Um, some people go over, should I write this? Should I put this on, on the application if I know this lawyer is going to say something bad about me? It depends if they're going to say she's so unethical. I would not highlight that case to be called for the JNC member. Um, so it's a, it's a call that you make. Um, but, you know, there are many lawyers that you may not have gotten along with, but it depends on what they say. You're a liar is is not good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we fought aggressively. That's something fine. But they may get called. They may get missed. It really depends on who's doing the due diligence. And due diligence happens a couple of times. Um, so it really depends. Anything to add to that? We have a question. No, I, I don't think that they, I don't know that they did not call anybody. Uh, in fact, I know that they called everybody on my list and they told two people and so on and so on and so on. I, I don't know by the end of the process that there was any stone left mm -hmm. unturned. Um, so thankfully I was able to be a civil litigator and be civil. Um, but yeah, there is definitely a public element to the process and uh, people may not show up to the governor's council hearing, um, but they will definitely um, let their governor counselor know um, if they have a beef or positive or negative to say about you. I definitely had them, the governor's counselor say, um, oh, we received letters from so-and-so and such and such. And, and then they all copy each other, so. Question online. Um, as part of the GNC interview, do they sometimes ask you questions about specific political issues or societal controversies like they do in federal nominations and confirmations? They did for the SJC um, thing. I think they asked questions about um, death penalty and abortion. Um, so I, I don't know that that happens and the um, other courts, but they did ask. They, they did ask about like sentencing guidelines. What would you do? What would you give this person who broke into my house? <laughs> they wanted me to say, I'll send them away for jail forever. I mean, it, but in terms of, um, they did ask political questions that were relevant at that time. When, when I was um, interviewing, the whole issue was of a non-documented individual who comes to court, would you report to ICE and all that stuff was a big issue. Uh, and for me, I, I was prepared for some of those questions. So I kind of um, gave a very, really no answer in a, in a good answer, meaning like no one way or the other, but um, it really depends on what's hot in the topics now, but I didn't get that many questions, um, but I think SGC is a little bit more thorough probably, or a lot more questions involved. So, um, so I, I did, but I was, I, I knew I, how to answer it. You have to answer it in a very fair manner and not really possibly what you really think. Um, one more question before we move on from the application processes. Um, I heard a couple from a couple of um, cycles of GNC prior to this one was obviously you don't always get on the first time you apply. You get rejected sometimes or, you know, not your turn right now. Women applicants tend not to apply more than once after that rejection, but male applicants will apply, apply, apply. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you deal with 
the emotional toll of having to, you know, be told not your turn yet or no. I mean, I'll just observe that that is generally what happens with men and women, not just for the judge's position, but that this is my own experience. Um, I think uh, women tend to um, self-select out. Um, and so what I tell uh, women and men is that, you know, the only time that you miss 100% of, uh, you don't score 100% of times you don't shoot, right? Um, so, so shoot, who cares? I will say with a caveat that, um, you know, if you apply one year and you didn't even get a call with a JNC or an interview with JNC, um, I've talked to people about maybe building up more about your application rather than applying every single time there's a there's a position that's open um, because there is a portion in the application. How many times have you applied to JNC and to which court? So if you've applied to juvenile and got denied, if you applied probate court, you got denied. If you applied to land court, you got denied. It, it, it kind of shows that you just want to be a judge rather than a particular field that you want to focus on, or you just keep applying every six months. It's not a good look. Um, so I think you really have to think about when it's good time to strike. Strike as much time as you think is appropriate, but when it's good time to uh, strike. Um, the new JNC members, do, do you have some more pull in terms of people pushing you? But I would not recommend applying every six months and just trying as much as, because there is a portion where it's going to say uh, rejected, 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 rejected. So that's not what you want. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing for you to have applied before, but you certainly don't want to apply every six months. Um, but so you have to strike when it's the right time. Now we've applied, we've gotten through, and we've made it. What is your life like as a judge? I think you were going to ask Kat that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so frankly, you know, as a trial litigator, it's just as much hard work, but it's so much within my control. I'm not waiting to see and praying to see if a key witness is going to show up. You know, I, I, I don't have that burden of proving something or presenting a case and then failing with the evidence not being there or making a mistake. Um, and so the things beyond my control was things that were eating away at me um, as a trial attorney. Um, I, and I worked a lot. I mean, I worked law firm hours uh, with a very low pay, but that's because I felt very strongly and convicted about the things that I was doing. In terms of stress level, it's a very different kind of stress for me. Of course, I want to do the right thing. I do not want to get flipped by these people. Um, <laughs> I want, and I don't want them to think I'm an idiot. So I want to do the right thing. Um, so that is, but at the end of the day, if I make a mistake at that time, um, the stress is, you know, maybe a, another case, a case has to be tried again. That's stressful if it was my mistake. That's the stress that I, I have. Did I give the wrong instruction? But um, 
that those are all kind of within my control. Um, and so in terms of stress, it's also, did I make the right decision? Did I do the right thing? Um, so that's a very different kind of stress. Can I live with this, letting this guy go and possibly committing another, you know, I let a guy go recently and 10, oh, 10 months ago and he committed murder. Uh, that, can you live with that? I can live with it because at the time that I released him, I had reasons that I released him. 10 months later, what he did, I can't control. But it's something that, you know, sticks sticks with you. Um, in terms of time, I, I leave at 4.30. Um, and that's never something I did as a prosecutor. Um, I come in really early. I'm a morning person. So when I'm sitting in civil, I'm a little bit more hyper because I don't know what I'm doing as much. And I'm writing a lot. Um, so... I don't like having a lot of things under advisement. So I am coming in really early. I'm like four o'clock in the morning just to get it done. Um, but that's not every day. Um, for I'm in the first session and criminal session for three months. It's great. I don't have a lot of writing, but my days are filled with very stressful decision-making. When I'm sitting in civil, it's a lot more weekends writing, morning writing, trials, and then doing motions. But in terms of stress, it's a very different kind of stress, but I am able to leave at 4.30 and go to a baseball game. I never was able to do that. I don't have to go at three o'clock in the morning to go to a scene. No one calls me unless you're in judicial response at three o'clock in the morning. So my life is a lot more balanced um, in terms of that, in, in terms of family life, uh, because I can work different times and make up for the different times. So I'm so grateful for that. Um, I don't really know how I got here to be able to do that. And so I, I'm just grateful, but my everyday is different depending on, um, what session I'm in, what court I'm in. So that's my everyday. Sounds like fun. <laughs> no, what I'll say is that one of the coolest things I think about being a judge um, um, and on the SJC is that we get to try to figure out what the right answer is. We don't, you know, we're not advocating for one side or the other. We're just trying to figure out what, what's the right answer. And then we get to say what that answer is, you know, and I don't have to worry about being flipped. That was that was stressful to me, worrying about, you know, look, who's looking over my shoulder to see what I'm, I'm writing and is this going to get screwed up? But um, you live with it. It's not that big a deal and it shouldn't be. I, I, I hate to think that judges, um, trial court judges are worried about what's, you know, what we're going to do to their case. Um, we're all just trying to do what we think the right thing is. That's it. And you know, the SJC has seven people to think about it. And we've got all the time in the world. We've got law clerks and interns who can help us figure out what we what the right answer is and come up with things that may not even been have been on the um, under consideration, you know, in the trial court. But I really like being able to say, well, this is what makes sense. And this is this is what the law is. And, you know, let's let's give it to them. So one of the things I've heard a lot about the change from being in the private practice or, you know, in the government practice world into going on the bench is a sense of isolations because so much of the judicial ethic kicks in where you can and cannot do things. Do you feel a sense of isolation? And if you do, or how do you deal with that? What do you do? 
Um, so one of the hardest parts about leaving private practice was leaving the family that I had created at my firm and my clients. Um, and I miss that. Um, and I don't uh, get together with them as much as I used to, uh, even if I'm recused. And I do recuse myself from the cases that may come before the SJC that my firm um, or people that were at my firm uh, were at. Um so there is that, but we have, I mean, I saw on the appeals court, I had 25 great colleagues and uh, we get together, we do things. And on the SJC, I've got six fantastic colleagues um, who, you know, again, we bond together and we, we get to make, as, as the chief was saying, these decisions um, and there isn't acrimony among the justices. Um, we really are trying to work together to get to the right answer. Um, and, and I love that. Um, and I, you know, thrive on that. Um, so. So I think for young attorneys or attorneys in this generation, I don't think it was a big deal for judges that are coming out. You, you can't get on social media. I mean, for the, that's for me, that, that might not be a big deal. Um, but if you're in your thirties and your whole life was Instagram and Facebook, and that's how you connected with friends, I cut that off completely. And that was that wasn't, you know, it wasn't nothing. Um, so that's something uh, um, also you can't make any political contributions. Those are things that you can't do. I also have a horrible temper driving. So I had to kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so I can't be flipping people off now that I'm a judge. Uh, so there are things that I knew I had to do because you're in the public eye. You know, um, but in terms of isolation, surprisingly, I'm totally fine with someone leaving me alone and having to just make decisions and write. Um, I do miss the kind of the social aspect of it, but you keep your lawyer friends and you you say you're completely out of those. So um, you, you are close, close friends. So um, and you have other community, other family and other friends that you can. So I don't find it that isolating, but it's also because I feel really fulfilled in what I do daily. So it's not like I'm waiting for my clock to turn at 430 and trying to figure out how I'm going to spend my time and I'll try to socialize with someone. We're really busy, so we don't even have time. Um, but there are some aspects that, you know, um, that you have to consider as a young attorney, what you do daily, you know, um, social media, um, what you say online or whatever, whatever that may you may want to do. There are many things you can't do as a judge. Um, someone asked me, like, can you just, you know, um, go out for a walk in Boston Common and actually think about your cases? And I say, not unless I actually take that time off. Because I don't want to be seen in Boston Common walking around at three o'clock when I should be in court. So I, to be frank, like I, I, if you're someone who loves the freedom of walking around, or the, you need to just take that time off. And that's something that I don't find problems with. But after two o'clock, I'm in court. I, I'm not. I'm not even going to get coffee. I mean, that's probably extreme, but I'm not walking around being seen not in court unless I took the time off. So those are. Very few things um, that you need and, and, you know, temper it while you're driving. But um, <laughs> but isolation, I didn't I don't find that yet. So still. So a lot of us here are part, you know, we're members of the BBA and other affinity bar organizations. And there's been a, a constant reminder from the courts that we need to diversify the bench. What is the role of 
organizations, bar organizations, the bigger ones, and the affinity bars in trying to meet that directive from the courts. Justice Bud. I mean, I think you're doing it right now, right? Um, we have to figure something out. This is, uh, it's really important and it's not, it's not just, it, it's for a lot of reasons, but you know, one of the reasons uh, that I, I alluded to before, it's so important for people to be able to see people who look like them in the courtroom. And, you know, sitting around that table, making decisions um, in the consultation room, sometimes there are things that people hadn't thought about until I said, well, you know, and if I wasn't there to say it, it might not have gotten said. Might have, it might not have. Um, we have, we, the bench has to be diversified. So people have to apply, you know? And I can't, I can't stress that enough. It's just, that's the only way the system's gonna work. I mean, we've got enough problems. Um, and so, yeah, I think we have to get people to understand that you can be a judge. You should be a judge. You, you should be in there making these decisions. You know? Consider, I mean, I didn't want to go to the SJC, by the way. I liked doing what I was doing. But I felt like I should go because I didn't want to give up that chance. I didn't want to miss my chance. And now that I'm I'm there. I think it's a pretty important given, you know, just the times that we're in. I'm not having the time of my life, <laughs> but I feel like it's really important, you know? So, um, so I feel like I stepped up and I feel like other people need to think about um, stepping up. And one last question that's more individual. Um, what specific advice do you have for those of us who are here online, people who watch this after, who are thinking about a career on the bench but are not ready, they don't feel ready? And I'll start with you, Justice Wendland. I guess my advice would be you're ready. Um, you know, so when... There was an opening at the SJC, and I was very comfortable at the appeals court. It is a great schedule, and I knew the SJC schedule was not going to be great. And um, I still have one child at home, and I thought, I'm not doing this. And I got a phone call from the now chief, and she said, I'm going to apply, and you need to apply. And I, yeah, I took that to heart, and I said... Uh, it's time. I need to do it. I'm ready. I don't think I am. And it's going to be hard. Um, but, you know, I, I just, you got to just apply. Um, I do think the diversity on the bench is important. I've come to learn that. Um, and, and I think the diversity of voices in decision-making is really important. Um, so you, you're ready. Uh, just come uh, and do it. And I said that before, the application is suggestive. They're, they want to learn who you are. Uh, so tell them. 
um, and bring your whole story. Don't be afraid. Don't hide it. Um, just tell your story because that's what a judge is at the end of the day. Somebody who has some legal knowledge, not in everything, but in some things, but mostly common sense and personal knowledge about what makes sense for society. Um, and we're gifted that we get to make that decision. Come help us make it. Please come. Thank you, Judge Hong. Um, I think same thing, but also um, quieting your own doubts. And I think that's just really what I've gone through. Um, and I, I think <laughs> I think that's my number one. Um, and, and not letting what you really want to um, be silenced by all the things that you're afraid of and what you think you may not be good at. And especially marginalized or women of color, you know, we're not going to be looked at as immediately someone who would be a good judge. You know, like stereotype of me now as a judge was like, you know, she's agreeable, submissive. She might be someone I could pull over something over, you know, and that's horrible traits again as a judge. I'm same as a trial attorney. Um, so you don't get the benefit of doubt that you would be a good judge. So if you don't advocate for yourself and you don't try and you don't apply, no one's going to do it for you. Um, so apply also, you know, know your body of work. Also listen to yourself. If you think you're not ready, you're not ready. You know, if you, if you can't fill out that application unless after you've tried really hard, you want to wait a little bit, you know, I think that's listen to yourself, but don't be silenced by so much fear. And also I would just really ask, you know, BBA, where, wherever organization, talk to someone who knows something. I'm happy to help anybody without charge. <laughs> um, happy to help anybody to give you an honest opinion about what I think and, you know, your timing process and all that stuff. But you need to talk to someone. You can't go in blind. You have to know the process and understand the process. So I guess that's that's my advice. Thank you. Justice Bud. Didn't I talk? Oh. Yeah, just any advice oh. specifically. <laughs> okay. Um go for. Yeah, no, I mean. Look into it. You know, I think everything that's been said has been really helpful. Go to court, see what it's like. Pull the application. You don't have to do anything with it. Just take a look at it. Familiarize yourself. Um, find out what other people's experiences have been. And, you know, yeah, you do have to have how much, how many years of experience? You have ten. to have 10? Okay. So if you have 10 years, you may very well be ready. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, thank you again. If I, if, if I, I always think about, you know, how would I describe somebody in a short word? I think for being some, on the bench, all three of you, I would say smart with heart, <laughs> right? Um, got the heart in the right place. Thank you so much for opening up. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your stories um, as to, and inspiring all of us to maybe think a little bit deeper about if for those of us who are thinking about it, who are not yet there, um, and definitely use the BBA and the affinity bars and all the other bar associations and use judges. They've opened themselves up to you for a reason. Um, they want us there. So 
thank you again for um, reminding us what our role is in this system. Thanks. Thank you. And there is a little reception, I think, after this. We're, we're, we've ended a few minutes early because I know I mean, this is a two-hour-long program. But if you want to mingle, um, the judges will hang around for a little bit longer. Um, feel free to stick around, ask questions, um, and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you.